0: We are continuing in our study of the church. Looking at different aspects of the church. Seeing how Christ Himself is the builder of His church. It is not we, the people who build it. It is Christ who works to build His church. He adds to His church as such should be saved, as His word says. It is the church that He has made a holy nation and a royal priesthood. It is the church that conducts itself in a way that God has already set up to be and that we give ourselves over to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship. These are things that the church does in order to please the Lord who built it. When we look at different aspects of the church, we see how the church uh, works itself through uh, suffering and trials and tribulations. We went over that as we were going through the church militant, that it is the church engaging the culture, engaging the world with the gospel of Christ, bringing the gospel to everyone. And even times of great persecution or great suffering, we are still bringing the gospel and we are shining the light of the gospel in the darkness. And this morning we are looking here at Psalm 95 to see yet another aspect of the church That the church is to be a worshiping body. And when I say worshiping, I'm not just referring to going through the motions of things, but indeed, it is called upon the people of God to have a genuine heartfelt worship of bringing ourselves low, of elevating Him high and exalting Him and praising Him for who He is and what He's done for us. These, These things should come from the heart. It is not good enough To simply go through the motions. It is not good enough to simply give lip service. For we see where that leads. Hold your place there in Psalm 95 in Isaiah chapter 1. Beginning of verse 10. Listen to what the Word of God says to the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 1 beginning of verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. In a very similar way, at least in addressing the very heart of the issue. In Revelation chapter 2. You have the Lord who was writing to the church of Ephesus. What's John writing on behalf of the Lord? <clears throat> Here's what he says. This is the church of Ephesus, by the way. Revelation chapter 2. Beginning of verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this i know in perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have pers- and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now you have the church of Ephesus here, whereas Israel is just going through the motions while committing blatant idolatry and a blatant sin. Now you have the church of Ephesus over here, that is actually doing the things that are right. They're calling out those who refer to themselves as apostles. They're testing them to see whether or not they are. They're going through all the right things. But the Lord says, I have this against you. You left your first love. It's not from your heart that you're doing these things. And if the, if the Lord is writing to the church to address those, those very the core issues with them, to say you're doing this right, you're doing this right, this is in accordance with what my Word says, but this isn't from your heart, then it cannot be that we would be satisfied just going through the motions of things and not allowing our hearts to be in what it is that we are doing on the Lord's Day, engaged in worship. Going through the motions doesn't address the whole man. The mind, the body, the will, the emotions... The people of God are to be a worshiping congregation. A worshiping congregation with the whole self. Not just recounting these things in our minds and and just letting them loose with our tongues as we sing. But our hearts have to be engaged. And then on the other hand of things, even when we sing, the heart cannot be demonstrated to be a public expression of worship because you can't see what's going on in the heart. It must be that what the heart is yearning for and desiring comes through our lips as we sing, as we shout for joy. The people of God are to be a worshiping body. There are so many homes that we could choose to look at to see how it is that the people of God conduct themselves as they are engaged in worship. Psalm 95 really brings it to the forefront as well. We see the praise of the Lord being given in, in this psalm. We see the attitude that we are to have. We see the posture that we are to have. That it addresses the whole man. And then gives a warning at the end for how we live our lives before the Lord. All of these things addressing the heart issues. The outward expressions of public worship. And I pray that it would indeed be beneficial to us as a congregation. That I pray that we would be uh, benefited in the sense of, of feeling freer to worship God with our lips. That our minds would be understanding that we are coming in here for the express purpose of worshiping God. So that our minds are engaged and our emotions are engaged and our will is engaged to go out and do whatever the Lord wants us to do. Pray that we would be a worshiping body. Let's look at this psalm together, Psalm 95. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the Living God. Let us hear the Word of the Living God. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, Truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, You are indeed our great King. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are our only sovereign. It is You that dwells in unapproachable light. Father, You do whatever You please in heaven and on earth. And we thank You that though You are clothed with all Your majesty and splendor, Though you are high and lifted up, yet you condescended to enter into relationship with us, rebels, sinners. Holy Father, I pray that you would guide our thoughts this morning and that you would preach to our hearts these very wonderful you find in Scripture. That you would be glorified in our worship, glorified in our attitudes, in our outward expressions, glorified in our lives. Father, teach us this day and bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. So here we have Psalm 95 that is teaching us. Teaching us of worship. Teaching us Of what it is of of the attitude of the heart. How we are to come before the Lord. One of the first things that we find here in this psalm. Are these parallel statements that really drive home emphasis for us. The writer begins with demonstrating or with addressing. That we are to praise with our mind and our hearts. It is an attitude of the mind and the heart. He says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. He is calling the rest of the people of Israel to come. Just in the same way as what we would address and say, Oh, or the song rather, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, right? Or, Oh, come, all ye faithful. We are calling for a response, we are calling for an action. This word is encouraging them that is translated here "come" in the Hebrew "elak." It's an encouragement to do something, calling upon the people of God. God, uh, do something. What is he calling them to do? Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Notice it's in all capitals. Let us sing for joy Yahweh, the sacred name of God, addressing God by His very name. Let us sing, let us resound before the Lord. Joy it is indeed part of this Hebrew word, but it is, it is to resound, it is to, to make a heartfelt noise before the Lord. Let us do so together, he says. Let us do so with joy. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, he says. That God is to be worshipped with holy joy and delight in Him. One writer says, spiritual joy is the heart and soul of a thankful, of thankful praise. Spiritual joy is the heart and soul of Thankful praise. Let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The word rock is used in a number of passages, of course, referring to the Lord. It is translated elsewhere as mighty God. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Now, not only are we called to make a loud and implicitly heartfelt noise before the Lord, these are the things that we recount as we come. This is the things that the writer is addressing to the people because this psalm is most likely sung at the commemoration of the Exodus or of the sealing of the covenant at Sinai. He says to the people, let us come before Him. Let us come before His presence and literally it means let us meet His face. Let us meet His face. It's how the writer is addressing the people. To "Come, Let us come knowing that we are coming into the very presence of God. Let us go and to meet His face. And it is... It is giving us this indication that it is the initiative of the worship to come into Yahweh's presence. As they have a standing invitation to come. None have to wait for the Lord's invitation. They are invited to come at any time. To come and meet His face. Now granted, there are none that have ever seen the face of the Lord. And the Lord himself says, no man has seen God at any time. No one can see my face and live. But it does express to us, expresses to the people of Israel then, that when they come to worship, that they are coming literally into the very immediate presence of God. So these are the exhortations that the psalmist is giving to the people. Let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully to the rock. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. And then he begins to give the reasons. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. This is why, people of Israel, you should worship God. This is why you should shout joyfully to Him. This is why you should be singing to Him and making heartfelt noises unto Him because He is a great God and He is a great King above all gods. Now interestingly, in this text, he's saying for Yahweh is a great God. The word translated God here is El. Which is very interesting because in the Canaanite pantheon of their gods, the top god... It's called El. It's translated means God. But here you have the psalmist that is using El to reference that Yahweh is without question the top God in all of existence. Perhaps they had in mind as that he the psalmist is talking about here that the Lord is a great God and the great King above all gods. That he's not just referring to idols, the idols of men or the figments of imagination, but rather he is talking about even those that worship the angelic hosts. That there is an improper application of worship being given to the angelic hosts that are being referred to as gods. And the psalmist is bringing the people back to the understanding the only God that is worthy to be worshipped is Yahweh. Many kings say for themselves that they are great. Many kings would say that they are rulers of the known world. And yet, we know that that is hyperbole because there are only certain areas within their kingdom that they are actually ruling over. That there are places even outside of their kingdom that are not within their domain. But the psalmist here is saying that he's a great king above all the other gods. In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. He is expressing the sovereignty of Yahweh over all the, not only inhabited earth, but over all the earth itself, even the places that are uninhabited, the places that have never been seen by man. That he is, that he is taking this, this idea of sovereignty and he is expressing this all over the entire earth, all of this belongs to Yahweh. even the seas belong to him. the mountain peaks, the seas. It is all his because he made it. It was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. But what is it that he's calling Israel to do? He's saying, sing for joy, shout joyfully. And then the reasons He gives is because the Lord our God is the greatest God in existence because any other God is no God and this God is the one who formed everything. So in light of His creative acts, in light of His sovereignty over the entire earth, over the entire existence, over the entire universe, in light of just those things, shout joyfully to the Lord and sing unto Him. he then begins to give more exhortations to the people. Not only the exhortation for the attitude that they come before Yahweh with, joyful singing and thanksgiving of the heart. But now he gets into even more when it comes to the outward expressions of worship. He says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is a different word being used here that is translated come in your text there. It actually means come in. Whereas the psalmist is calling the people at the beginning, come on, sing. Now he's saying, come in. And the idea there is a movement from the people of God into a sanctuary as as you as you would think. It suggests movement. And the public outward expressions of worship is prostrate yourself. Bow. Kneel before the Lord. This word worship, let us worship, means to prostrate yourself. Worship is more than just an attitude of heart. Worship is demonstrated by your actions, by your movements, and how you respond to the things of God. Prostrate yourself, meaning bring yourself low, bow before the Lord, kneel before the Lord. All these things are implying self-humbling before God. The implications is not just what one does in their hearts, but in the outward worship. It is visible public worship that is being expressed to us here. Visible public worship. The people of Israel are called upon in the time that they gather together to worship to bow before the Lord, kneel before the Lord, to prostrate yourself before the Lord, to express the joy and genuineness of thanksgiving with your hearts through outward singing. Shouts of joy. And now He calls upon them to actually demonstrate this with bodily movement. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Once again, He is giving reasons for this exhortation. He is our God. This is covenant language. Covenant language to the people of Israel. Yahweh is our God. It is He who has made us. It is He who has brought us in to be the sheep of His pasture. It is He who has made us to be a kingdom unto Himself. And in light of the covenant that God has entered into with the people, they are indeed to demonstrate their genuineness of heart with thanksgiving in this outward expression of worship. He is our God. We are His people. This is covenant language. If you go to Genesis... Genesis chapter 17. This is where the Lord is speaking to Abraham. Verse seven. I will establish my covenant between me and your descendants you after Lasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. In Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 32. Of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Covenant language that is being used there. They shall be My people and I will be their God. And here the psalmist is recounting these things to the people of Israel. He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. They are praising God because of this covenant that God has made with them. He has entered into relationship with them. He has made them His own. And in light of the covenant, they call upon God in worship. This is indeed covenant language. so He calls upon them to worship with their bodies. He calls upon them to worship with the attitude of the heart, with thanksgiving and with joy. And then he, he is reminding them as well to worship God and to praise God even with their lives. He says in the latter part of verse 7, Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Mass in the wilderness when your fathers tested Me. They tried Me, though they had seen My work. This is taking us back to Exodus chapter seventeen, where the psalmist is reminding the people of what had happened. In Exodus chapter seventeen, beginning of verse one. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses said and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now to kill us? Children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this, to this people? a little more, and they will stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. And the people... uh, And Meribah, because of the coral and." Is the Lord among us or not? So here you have the people of Israel that have been brought out of Egypt by a mighty hand with great signs and wonders. They get to a place uh, going into the promised land is where they're headed. And then they start to grumble among themselves. They start to grumble against Moses. Moses, have you brought us out here to die? Not even considering the fact that they saw the Lord you part the red sea that they went over on dry land they seen the miracles of god demonstrating for them that it was the lord who was bringing them out and they still tested the lord asking the question is the lord among us or not and so the psalmist here is bringing these things back to the people and he is addressing the people as as he would have as the lord was addressing the people in that day the congregation is challenged to see itself as addressed by God, as at Sinai or in the plains of Moab. If you would listen, he says, if you would hear his voice, conditional clause, very similar to how we read in other passages, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, for example. If you would listen, I will give you rain. But they did not listen, they hardened their hearts. And that's why the Lord says, they've seen my work, and they still tested me, and for 40 years, I loathed that generation. This is a very similar word to that of hate. He was provoked by this generation continually to loathe them to the extent that he finally says, you're not going to enter into the promised land. We're going to wander here in the wilderness for 40 years, and you're going to die out, and then I'm going to take the next generation in. The psalmist is bringing all these things back to the people to say that the people of Israel then, as they had entered into covenant, as they were the covenant people of God, that the way that they were living thereafter should have been a praiseworthy life unto the Lord for all that He was doing in their life. But instead, it was a life of continual complaining and testing the Lord. Are you really here or are you not? Living in unbelief. So the psalmist, as he is calling for all these expressions of worship of the heart and of the body itself, he's calling for praise in their lives. A life lived of worship unto the Lord, of listening to the Lord, of following the Lord. Because the Lord had sworn His anger to that generation that they would not inherit His rest. Now for us, this psalm is no different in in its results, in its exhortations to us than it was for them. In Hebrews chapter 12, a passage that we have been over before, of course, Hebrews chapter 12, let me begin to read in verse 18. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and to the church of the first God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. This expression denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service or worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews is addressing the New Testament Christians And he is saying to the Christians then, coming from the old covenant ways, he's saying to them, first off, you haven't come to a mountain like it was at Sinai with blazing fire that the people couldn't even come. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the myriads of angels that are worshiping before God. You've come to the firstborn. You've come to the general assembly. You've been able to come close and near by the blood of Christ, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And therefore, in light of these things, in light of this covenant that God has entered into with you, therefore, offer to God the acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. In light of what the writer of Hebrews says, in light of what the writer says, of the psalm is saying here that the people of God, even on this side of the cross, should be coming into the sanctuary, coming into this place with joy. Joy in their hearts. For they have been made partakers of a covenant ratified by the Lord Jesus by His blood. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, spotless. So for us, we sing for Joy. Because of the covenant that we've entered into, we sing for joy that our names are written in heaven. We sing for joy reflecting upon our great shepherd, the good shepherd that laid his life down for us. We shout for joy for the greatness of God that was demonstrated in Christ Jesus and the greatness of God that's demonstrated to us every day of our lives. Come before God. Bow before Him. Kneel before Him. Prostrate yourself before Him. Humble yourself before Him. And the thing is, is that we may come into this place indeed, but our hearts are not yet humbled before God because we have not submitted ourselves unto Him because we want it our way. We want our lives our way. We want to do it our way. We don't want to give any thought to the things of God because we have a plan. We have things we like. Does it matter what God says? And yet we think we're going to come into this place and we're going to give heartfelt worship? No, dear friends. True worship is given when we address God on His terms. True worship is giving, given when we address God and who He really says that He is and what He requires of us. We are remembering and recounting all of these things when we come into this place that we say, God, thank You. Thank You for saving me. Thank You for offering Your life for me as a ransom in spite of me. Let me sing unto You. Let me pray to You. Let me engage my mind mind in worship to You. Let me know more of You. Don't let me be satisfied. Don't let me be satisfied with the things out there. Let me be satisfied only in You. Let my peace be in You. Let my joy be in You. Do not harden your hearts to what God says. This text is actually addressed by the writer of Hebrews as he recounts this passage in His epistle, in light of the Gospel. Do not harden your hearts to the Gospel. Do not harden your hearts to the consequences of the Gospel that God has placed upon His people in light of the Gospel. Don't harden your hearts to what Christ has done for you giving His life for you and taking your punishment for you. Living the life that you should have lived for enduring the punishment that you should have endured. Christ has done it all. And what does He say to us then? Come, I will give you rest. I will give you rest from your labors. I will give you rest from all your toil. Come to me and I will give you peace. Knowing that you have peace with God on account of the Lord Jesus, don't harden your hearts, he says. And don't harden your hearts to the implications of the gospel in your life. Come and follow me, he says. Do not test the Lord. Do not provoke the Lord to anger by your disobedience. Do not provoke the Lord to anger because of your lack of thankfulness to Him. Remove all of that from you. The writer of Hebrews says, let us run our race with endurance and lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily besets us. Let us run to Christ He stands with open arms. Do not harden your hearts this day, dear friends. But let your hearts be humbled before God. Let your hearts be filled with the joy and the thankfulness of God. That our great King, our Maker, the Sovereign of all the earth, the Great and the Awesome God, the Lord God of heaven and earth, has called you to be his. And he says, These are the things that I want you to do and to live before me, demonstration of your love and devotion to me. I saved you in spite of yourself. And walk worthy of your call. Let every day be a day of worship before as you enter and let it be that our worship will be even greater as we are now among our brothers and sisters in Christ. Offering our worship with, with praise upon our lips, with hearts full of thankfulness. Because the church should be a worshiping congregation. With our minds, our bodies, our wills, and our emotions. <clears throat> Isaac Watts, append these words. And we think of the worship that went on in Israel in those days. And how they would still rejoice before the Lord. And yet, salvation had not been wrought yet by Christ. But yet, in light of the things that God had laid out for them, they were still a worshiping congregation at times. The height of their worship was probably when Solomon had taken over the kingdom. We have to understand that what we have is much better than they. Isaac Watts in these words. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sin away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. We have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. Our great king become a servant to redeem us. If we have difficulty expressing joy and love, if we have difficulty demonstrating what's going on in our hearts, but if God is this morning through His Word to your heart, do not harden your hearts towards Him. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are indeed the great God. We thank you that you are the king, the great king over all the earth. We thank you that you are clothed with with majesty and splendor. We thank you that we are privileged to know you. Privileged to serve you. Privileged to be called your own. And now we pray, Holy Father, that, that we would indeed be a worshiping congregation in the days that we come here within our lives as well. Giving you thanks for all that you've done for us in Christ. Father, work within our lives and accomplish mighty things in us. Rebuke us, encourage us, comfort us, whatever your will would be, we pray that it will be done. Humble us before your mighty hand. Keep us close to yourself that we would not develop pride in our hearts. That we would remain humble and only seek to exalt our great King, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that he did. Thank you for his life that was given for us. We owe you everything. Our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Father, that in light of these things, that when we come before you, that we would sing for joy. Not just remaining with an attitude of the heart, but expressing the attitude of the heart with the praise of our lips. Father, be glorified in us. And I pray, Holy Father, that if some here do not know you, that, Father, you would indeed make yourself known to them in a mighty way. Forgive us where we have failed you. Forgive us for we have been disobedient. Help us to do what is right and to always give you thanks. Be glorified in us. In Jesus. Amen.